This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For over 16 years, the Business of Government Hour has brought you leading government executives who are changing the way government does business. Each week, our guest joins us for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on their careers, their agencies, agency accomplishments, as well as their vision of government in the 21st century. Leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amongst uncertainty. This is no small feat, and it is made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid, unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. Today, the leader I profile is Dr. David Shulkin, the new secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Shulkin a few months ago when he was leading the Veterans Health Administration, VHA. He made a significant impact on VHA in a short time, but now he is charged with leading the entire department, the second largest federal civilian department with over 300,000 employees and a budget close to $80 billion. Who is Dr. David Shulkin? What is his leadership philosophy? How did he in fact reform the VHA? And what can we learn about him from his time leading VHA? This special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership, will explore these questions and so much more. It is my hope that you'll learn more about a government executive who is changing the way government does business. But changing the way government does business requires patience. Dr. Shulkin explains the goals he sought and the challenges he faced in his previous role as VA Undersecretary for Health. He points out that change may take patience, but it requires resolve. It took a year to vet me and to get my confirmation uh, first uh, vetted so that the president nominated me and then secondly to get confirmation from the U.S. Senate. So I had a long period of time in which to think about what I would do coming into the organization. The first is is to fix the access issues in healthcare, the real crisis that led towards um, where VA faced itself when I came into the organization, making sure it could provide Uh, good access for veterans who needed its help. The second is to focus on the employees and to make sure that they felt passionate about the work they were doing and they had the tools that they needed. And this uh, was a big challenge and still remains a challenge for me in finding the right leaders to step up and to lead my healthcare organizations around the country. The third was to transform VA from being separate VA medical centers to actually acting as an integrated enterprise across the country where we take 
best practices from one VA and make sure that they're spread throughout the country. The fourth was to work with our community providers, those that are academic affiliates and those who help us by providing care in the community, to form an integrated network with VA, what I call a high-performance network, where we can begin to start having seamless transitions of care between VA and the community. And the last and most important is really what I call our currency. Since we don't operate with a stock price and we don't operate by financial gains, our currency is really the trust of those that we serve, of the veterans. And clearly, in the wait time crisis that happened in April 2014, we lost a lot of confidence and trust. And so it's really my objective to build that trust back up with our veterans. Confidence and trust in VA has been attenuating for years. But Dr. Shulkin made it his objective to build the trust back with veterans. Sure, doing that takes an ambitious vision and a focused approach. But most of all, it involves putting veterans first. Well, one of the ways that I collect information about how to make the right strategic decisions is by actually listening to our veterans. And we are very fortunate in that we have organized groups of veterans. Many of them belong to what we call veteran services organizations. People know them as the American Legion, Veterans of Foreign War, Vietnam Veterans of America, Paralyzed Veterans of America, for example where we are in regular contact with them and the veterans that they serve about whether we are addressing their needs and whether our ideas are good ones to pursue. The underlying concept on how we're making these changes is really to be veteran-centric, not government-centric, not healthcare-centric, but veteran-centric. And to drive an organization that is meeting their needs is really what we've launched an initiative called MyVA, because we want every veteran to feel this is their VA. And in order for us to be able to meet their needs, we have to be listening to them. Listening to veterans is key to reforming the VA. But Congress also established a commission on care to examine veterans' access to health care, to also figure out how best to strategically organize the VHA, locate health sources, and deliver health care to veterans over the next 20 years. In my last conversation with Dr. Shulkin, he explains this effort and the insights gleaned. The Commission on Care was uh, set up by Congress and, and the president to provide recommendations on where the VA healthcare system should go in the future. It was actually uh, composed of uh, a number of leading healthcare executives um, and composed of people who understand the VA organization. And it focused specifically on the healthcare uh, mission of the organization. It was a very um, well-debated commission in that you heard all sorts of perspectives, people who felt that maybe the VA should be vouchered out and people that felt that that was the wrong decision. In the end, the commission reached a consensus and it said that the VA healthcare organization is absolutely necessary for veterans and for America, that the VA system needed to be kept intact and strong but that the VA needed to make some transformational changes in the way that it operates. And it gave 18 recommendations. Uh, 15 of those 18, the VA feels are absolutely the correct recommendations and actually have already begun initiatives and efforts to undertake them. Some of them are longer term and will take a while to accomplish, but we, act we are absolutely supportive of these recommendations and think that the commission did a very good job of uh, defining what's going to be required for the success of the VA. 
According to Dr. Shulkin, the commission did a very good job of defining what it's going to take for VA to be successful. Most of these efforts require a committed and highly skilled workforce. So what is being done to promote a positive culture of service throughout the VA enterprise? Here's Dr. Shulkin. We already have a workforce that is a very committed workforce to this mission. So this is not uh, something that we have to rebuild. It's something that we have to reinforce and, uh, frankly, is motivating when we do reinforce that for those who have chosen to come to the VA. We've launched a program called Leaders Developing Leaders. This is where we're taking our leadership off-site, spending the time personally with them, personally training these top leaders, and recommitting to the mission, and then having them cascade this leadership training down to the people who work in their organizations. We've now trained over 90,000 people in our organization with a commitment to value-based leadership and principle-based leadership. Traditionally, the VA, like many government organizations, has been rules-based. And uh, uh, we don't believe that there are many high-performing organizations that are rules-based. High-performing organizations tend to have principles and values and adhere to that and allow their leaders to lead in the way that supports those principles and values. And that's what we're putting in place and training people in that way of managing. Training people the right way with the organization's principles and values at the forefront can also go a long way in improving staff and employee morale. Number one is we're trying to listen to our employees. I try to do this uh, physically as much as I can. I do a town hall forum where I try to hear from employees, hear from union leaders, hear from veteran services organizations, congressional members. So trying to do as much listening as we can. But with an organization as big as this, with 320,000 people, I can't physically visit them all. So we've established uh, what I call the Facebook of VA. We happen to call it VA Pulse, where it's an open forum for people to be able to share their ideas, uh, not only with me, but with one another, to be able to um, get some of that active listening going on and sharing of ideas. Uh, I have been doing uh, virtual town halls, is simulcast to every VA in our, in our country, and we take uh, active questions from the field. We had over 10,000 uh, sites listening, hopefully multiple people at each site. So we're trying to reach as many people as we can and be able to have the communication be bi-directional. So communication listening is certainly part of it. But we're beginning to uh, take these ideas and actually implement them. So listening to our clinicians, uh, one of the things that they've said to us is, is that uh, the electronic medical record has too many alerts on it. It's, they're spending so much time answering alerts that they're not spending time with their veterans in the amount of time that they want. So we're looking at that and we're giving clinicians now more options to select which alerts are helpful to them and deselect which ones aren't. So uh, making the changes to make it a better environment, I think, is uh, ultimately the proof in the pudding, um, whether you're really listening or not. The focus on change is a consistent theme that runs throughout my conversation with Dr. David Shulkin when he was VA Undersecretary for Health. And moreover, no other health system is better positioned than VA to realize a more contemporary approach to healthcare service. How is VA promoting a transformation from a model of providing sick care to a real health and care model. Dr. Shulkin elaborates. Well, prior to coming to VA, I was involved in developing and launching an accountable care organization, one of actually the largest in the country. 
When I came to VA, what I realized is it is the largest accountable care organization in the country. It actually has a commitment once you leave the service till the rest of your life. And actually beyond that, that's why we have a national cemetery service. And so uh, we have everything that it requires to be able to provide the full scope of services that population-based health organizations and accountable care organizations do. And of course, a large focus of that is to do prevention and uh, to provide what I've described before as this holistic approach towards healthcare, that many of the determinants of well-being and health uh, relate not only to what we call physical health, but the economic and social and psychological health. And so, so we are really uh, focused heavily and have been for some time on prevention, on team-based approaches to care, on home health care, on uh, caregiver support, on many of the things that you're not seeing as well distributed in the private sector because they don't have the same financial uh, incentives that we do. Our only financial incentive is to do what's right for veterans, and that allows us a lot more freedom to develop what I do believe is really uh, the uh, gold standard of population health, and that, that occurs today in the VA healthcare system. Who is Dr. David Shulkin? I will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Profile in Leadership, returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership with Dr. David Shulkin. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. So who is the new VA secretary, you might ask? When I last spoke to him, he was in his role as Undersecretary for Health. Dr. David Shulkin provides an overview of his career path. Well, I'd like to think that uh, everything that I've done in my career has in some way prepared me to take on this role because... Uh, this is clearly a very challenging role that requires uh, not only an understanding of healthcare, but an understanding of how policies developed, an understanding of how to transform lar large organizations. And uh, I do think that I draw upon each of those skill sets that I've learned from different parts of my career. Uh, I'm an internist by background. Uh, I still. Uh, continue to see patients. I've always felt that that is an important part of helping me do my job better to, to understand what the frontline staff are facing. And so um, I view myself primarily first as a physician and second as an administrator or as a leader of an organization. Following uh, my training in internal medicine, I got advanced training in health outcomes research uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So I tend to look at things in a scientific point of view. I'm very focused on outcomes of healthcare because that's my foundational training. Uh, I went on uh, early in my career to be the University of Pennsylvania's first chief medical officer at a time that physician leadership was just really beginning to enter into the administrative parts of healthcare. And I felt strongly 
that if he didn't have a physician's voice or a clinician's voice in the development of the way our healthcare system was moving, which was clearly more towards um, developing utilization controls and developing outcome measures and quality metrics, that uh, it was very important to have that voice in those decisions. So I started my career along a management tract and uh, uh, had an opportunity after leaving the University of Pennsylvania after a decade to start a startup company. Uh, so I moved into my basement, much to my <laughs> wife's chagrin, uh, and started a company. This company was the first in the country to try to take quality metrics and translate them to consumers so that consumers could actually pick doctors and hospitals based upon quality, not upon costs or other issues. So uh, I had my experience as a startup entrepreneur and then went back into healthcare as a uh, academic, uh, actually became chairman of medicine and dean, vice dean of the medical school, Drexel University, and then uh, ultimately was offered my first opportunity to lead an organization, the CEO at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, which was a great experience to have your own organization to set the strategic direction. And then most recently, I was the CEO of Morristown Medical Center in northern New Jersey when I received a call whether I'd be willing to come in to help out the VA. Dr. Shulkin came to VA to lead its healthcare system. Now he leads the entire department. Here's some insight into his leadership approach. One of the cultural challenges of VA uh, and one of the realities that we face being in a crisis is that um, VA had to change the way it was doing business. And one of uh, the attributes that I bring, of course, is, is that I'm coming from the private sector. So many of the ways that, B that VA had been doing business, uh, I had the opportunity to take a fresh look at it with a set of new eyes. And so um, part of the leadership lesson that I've been bringing is, is that um, what's happening within government, what's happening in the VA, is actually not that different than what's happening in the private sector. And what I remind people is, if there's a hospital CEO who's not completely reevaluating their business model and looking at doing things differently, they're not going to be in their jobs long. And we in government have to think about it the same way. So we have to be looking at the private sector and seeing what practices and changes they're making and then bringing that into VA. It may be translated slightly different than if you were in the private sector, but ultimately changing to be more accountable for outcomes and results is something that is uh, you know, a seamless uh, fit between whether you're in government or out in the private sector. Leadership is multifaceted. Uh, I've had the great fortune of being able to work under many great leaders. And I like to think that I've picked the things that I've liked and disliked about each of those leaders and tried to bring them into my own style. But the essence of leadership, I think, is being able to set priorities and a clear vision. And then ultimately to be able to communicate it clearly. So uh, it's very difficult to be a strong, good leader if you're not a good communicator. And the more complex an organization, sometimes it requires the ability to prioritize more and to narrow the message to really be able to get it co to connect with your frontline people. So that's the, that's the essence of leadership. It, of course, assumes that 
you have good judgment, that you have the ability to see both near-term and far-term to set short-term courses and long-term strategic direction. And it assumes that you understand the business that you're in. But once you do that, I think what really differentiates leaders is their ability to prioritize and communicate. For Dr. Shulkin, a leader's ability to prioritize and communicate are essential. But leading can also be fraught with unanticipated or unexpected surprises. So what has surprised Dr. Shulkin the most? Well, I, I think what has surprised me most is actually how much of the system really works well. Um, the passion and commitment of our employees and staff. Uh, many people have an impression of government workers going home at 5 o'clock and just uh, you know putting in minimal effort. There's nothing further from the truth. These are some of the most dedicated and committed professionals that I've ever had a chance to work with in my career. So that was one of the pleasant surprises. I think the uh, complexity of the organization and our interface with uh, the requirement to get so many legislative changes to get things done was somewhat of a surprise. Um, I think that we've been fortunate in that we've had the support of both our House and Senate leaders in doing what's right for veterans. But as everybody can see, it's a challenge for, for the legislative branch to get things passed through Congress as well. So it's been uh, slower than I'd hoped. I know that many people share that. Uh, I think that we're headed in the right direction. I'm pleased with the proposals that we've made, but I'd certainly like to see us move uh, these changes quicker through Congress. At the time, Dr. Shulkin recognized that the success of any of these proposals would require a singular focus, but most of all, collaboration. He can't do it alone. Well, I think uh, the recognition of going through the crisis that VA has gone through, uh, again, starting in April of 2014, was essentially a recognition that the responsibility to care for the country's veterans was not VA's alone. And VA can't do it alone. And so it needs to work with those out in the community uh, to partner in strategic ways to be able to meet the needs of veterans. And the example of suicide, I think, is a clear example. The fact that the majority of veterans who are taking their own lives aren't in the VA system. We need to partner with others to reach out to them to get the care that they need. So VA, it's what I call the new VA, has uh, taken this recognition, we can't do it alone, out to the country and said to every major corporation, every major organization, if they have a willingness, an idea, some way that they can help us fulfill our mission to take care of the country's veterans, we want to be working with them. And so we've announced literally hundreds of partnerships around the country uh, to cement relationships that help us advance health care together to serve the country's veterans. And so um, uh, lots of examples of leading companies uh, – um, we have them with Google. We have them with IBM. We have them with the Elks uh, Club. We have them, you know, with Home Depot. So, uh, you know, I don't want to leave out important groups, of course. But, but, uh, but, but, but this is a new VA where, where uh, we are uh, willing to entertain ideas that make sense as long as they make sense for veterans and taxpayers. 
What reforms did Dr. David Shulkin pursue at the Veterans Health Administration? I'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Profile in Leadership, returns. How can risk management strategies reduce operational risk? How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? Join Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership with Dr. David Shulkin. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. When I last spoke to Dr. Shulkin, he was VA Undersecretary for Health. We discussed many of the efforts he was pursuing to reform the way VA delivers health and provides care. The Veterans Integrated Systems Technology Architecture, or VISTA, VA's electronic health record, has robust capabilities, especially in clinical applications. Dr. Shulkin explained the VISTA Evolution Project, highlighting some of the accomplishments to date and what's next. The VISTA Evolution Project is uh, trying to take our current state of where our electronic medical record is and transforming it into a system that is better prepared to meet the needs in the future. And so when we developed our electronic medical record called VISTA, we actually have 130 different versions of VISTA. So every one of our medical center regions has customized it to meet their local needs. When I talked about one of my priorities was to get VA to function as a single integrated enterprise, this is a good example. Uh, In our electronic medical record, we have functioned in 130 different silos. And that has limited our ability to meet the future needs of veterans because where healthcare is going today is it's using its data and allowing us to do analytics and to do practice changes in a single platform. So Vista Evolution is allowing us to take those 130 versions and convert it into a single version of Vista to allow us to meet the future needs of healthcare. We also discussed progress around that seemingly intractable issue of interoperability. VA and DOD share millions of health records between systems today. Having the veterans complete health record from both VA and DOD, as well as the community providers, is critical to providing seamless, high-quality access to care and benefits. Well, in April of 2016, both DOD and VA certified that we have achieved interoperability. So, definitionally, we have met interoperability. We have done that through what you've referred to as the joint legacy viewer, which means that if a veteran comes to us in VA or somebody is at DOD, we have the ability to view each other's records through a joint viewer. And so we can get access, and we're doing it, as you mentioned, uh, hundreds of thousands of times a year, accessing these records so that we know what treatments have been done in each organization. But these are read-only functions. And so they are not really the full true interoperability that one may imagine, which would be a seamless flow of information uh, beyond uh, only information gathering read-only. 
And so in order to do that, we still have additional work to do. I think it is one of the frustrations uh, of many. Uh, I hear it mostly from members of Congress who have said, look, you know, you're treating the same population of patients. We know where our future population of patients are coming from. They're coming from DOD. Uh, why, why haven't you guys done this better? And I think that's an appropriate challenge for both the VA and the leaders of DOD to, in the future, figure out ways, particularly as uh, healthcare gets more advanced and analytics get more advanced, uh, for us to expand on our definition of interoperability. So while we celebrate the achievements that we've made to date, I think we still have more work to do. Admittedly, interoperability isn't the only area where work needs to be done. Long deployments, intense combat conditions require comprehensive support for the emotional and mental health needs of our veterans and their families. Dr. Shulkin shared with me VA's effort in this area, all the while recognizing that more needs to be done. Well, there is no other system in the country that has extensive uh, behavioral health care services like the VA. We provided health care to 1.6 million veterans last year in behavioral health. We have um, extensive numbers of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, suicide prevention coordinators, all dedicated to the behavioral health of our veterans. And we integrate behavioral health into our primary care settings, unlike any other healthcare system in the country, so that you don't have to have the stigma of going to a mental health clinic. You can get your mental health services as part of your primary care. And we delivered over 1 million visits in uh, primary care mental health integration last year. We also provided 336,000 visits of mental health using telehealth services. So you can get access to uh, qualified professionals to help, even if uh, there aren't local healthcare professionals in your community. So VA is using these unique models of healthcare to help veterans in behavioral health. Having said that, um, we still have far too many people who are going untreated. Of the 20 veterans a day that take their life through suicide, which is a just an alarming figure, something that we're just not uh, willing or able to accept, and we're treating it as a national crisis, uh, of those 20 veterans a day, 14 of them don't get their care in the VA healthcare system, which means that they may be out there isolated, not getting the care that they need. And so we're working hard with community organizations and uh, national groups to try to identify veterans at risk and get them the help that they need in the VA healthcare system because we know that that saves lives. Saving lives is a core mission for VA and expanding the use of data analytics to enhance clinical decision-making efforts goes a long way to achieving that core mission in a 21st century context. That is, data and analytics to improve health outcomes. Well, uh, this is an area that I think that VA has been working on quite some time, and as the field gets more advanced, uh, VA's leadership in this will become clearer. We have uh, a 30-year history of electronic information, and so our databases are quite extensive, and we have been working with analytics to use it to help veterans get better health care. We were just talking earlier about suicide. So one of the tools that we're taking from our research lab into practice this month is what we call ReachVet. It is a analytics tool that helps identify veterans at risk of suicide. 
And we are proactively reaching out to those veterans and contacting them and saying, how can we help? How are you doing? You know, would you like to come in? Are there resources that we might have that could help you? And so that's an example of how we're using analytics, bring it into the clinical setting and hopefully helping save lives. We're actually partnering with IBM Watson to identify uh, veterans specific genomic sequencing and help target the right therapies to veterans so that they can get the very best possible therapy for their specific tumor. And this is a way that VA not only is using its analytic capabilities, but leveraging with the best technology and the best companies out there to help veterans get better outcomes. Another way VA is pursuing better health outcomes involves advances in genomic medicine and specifically the application of precision medicine. Dr. Shulkin elaborates. When you take a look at, at precision medicine and, and uh, you take a look at molecular type research, VA actually started a program called the Million Veterans Program in 2009. And today, VA has the largest database in the country of genomic material of patients we have over 500,000 veterans now in our data registry and, and in our storage tanks in Boston. And we are able to match that genomic data with the electronic medical records that we've had for veterans for 25 or 30 years. And we are doing research studies that no one else in the country can do. As part of this, we're actually helping the Precision Medicine Initiative at NIH get launched. Mm -hmm. And so we have signed a intra-agency agreement with the NIH in order to help support them in their precision medicine initiative. But it's VA today that is leading the country in these types of initiatives. Beyond these important initiatives, we should not forget that there is a nation of hidden heroes out there. In my discussion with Dr. David Shulkin, he recognized the crucial role that family caretakers play. They're partners in helping our veterans as they recover from injury and illness. VA is unique in its role in supporting family caregivers. Uh, we support currently 23,000 caregivers who are helping our veterans throughout the country. And we actually hope to expand that program. And there are some legislative proposals pending that would allow us to do that. But these are so critical to the health of our veterans. And if it weren't for these caregivers and our support for them, our veterans may be forced to leave their homes and be put in institutions or be readmitted to hospitals or have to have much more extensive treatment. One of our research programs has demonstrated that people who have caregivers at home are able to access our primary care services and our specialty services more, which means that they're getting the care that they need because of those caregivers, and that's preventing them from having to be in the hospital or in other types of institutions. So we believe this is not only the right thing to do for veterans, we actually think it's the right thing to do also for taxpayers because it's the most economical way of providing the support for veterans that is in their homes. VA is uh, recognizing that people who don't have family members still need caregivers. We are providing home health support and we certainly do not restrict our caregiver program to family members. Um, there needs to be that type of commitment to be in the program, and people need to qualify that they're willing to make that commitment. But we recognize that 
there are many people who can play the role of caregivers. What advice does Dr. David Shulkin have for those thinking about a career in medicine or public service or both? I will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Profile in Leadership, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Today's most effective government leaders can spark the imagination to look beyond the day-to-day urgencies and reflect on the serious problems and critical challenges they face today into tomorrow. Leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amongst uncertainty. This is no small feat, and it has made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid, unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. This calls for specific abilities and conceptual tools that foster the practice of foresight, visioning, partnering, and motivating, what Dr. Michael Maccabee refers to as strategic intelligence. What is strategic intelligence? What does it mean to be a strategic, operational, or networking leader? How do you employ smart motivation? And what is the relationship between personality and leadership? I will explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Michael Maccabee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. So, Michael, what is strategic intelligence and what are the core elements of strategic intelligence? And could you briefly describe each of those qualities? Strategic intelligence is a, first of all, let me say it's a system. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, each part of strategic intelligence Uh, interacts with other parts. So you can't really take them apart. Second of all, let me say it is a quality that may not be in a single individual, but in a team. Now, it includes, first of all, foresight. Uh, Any strategy has to start out, what what are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's coming in the future? And that has to be very clear at the top of any organization. But that has to be transformed 
into a vision of taking advantage of the threats and opportunities. So from foresight, you get visioning. But to realize the vision, to execute the vision, nobody can do it themselves. So you have to have partnering. You have to have the ability to partner with other people who complement your abilities. And it may be with customers, it may be with suppliers, because all of that may be essential to realize that vision. But then, once you have that, you've got to be able to motivate and engage your organization to realize that. And then once you're in motion, you have to be able to keep learning. And that gets back to foresight. Now, to make this work, strategic intelligence also requires that a person have a clear leadership philosophy. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to engage and motivate people. We'll see that more as we go on. Uh, you need to have a clear sense of a philosophy that includes your purpose. What are the practical values essential to achieve that purpose? What are, what are the basis of, of your ethical and moral decision-making? And finally, what are, you, what are you measuring? Are your measurements really reinforcing your, your purpose and your values? Furthermore, you need to have what uh, W. Edwards Deming called profound knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that includes understanding variation. That's not just statistics, but understanding the difference between causes that are based on the system, common causes, and special causes. You need systems thinking, which is crucial, because no vision today in any organization is going to really work without an understanding that you're trying to create a system where all the parts are interacting in order to further the purpose of that system. Third, you need to understand psychology mm -hmm. and particularly personality. Otherwise, you're not going to partner very well. And as you see, you're not going to be able to understand what motivates and engages people, what brings out their intrinsic motivation. And finally, you need to understand how you create new knowledge mm -hmm. because any organization today to be sustainable has to be able to continually innovate, continually improve, and that involves understanding the processes of creating knowledge. One thing I, I loved about the book uh, Michael, was not, aside from understanding what strategic intelligence is, a key way that you convey that conceptual system is through your intellectual journey. You're, and I'd like for you to share, who has influenced your intellectual and life work and your journey most and why? Well, you know, I've had a lot of teachers and mentors. And... Uh, you know, I've learned something about teachers and mentors. Um, it's a mutual process. Well, I, I've had that relationship with a number, uh, really starting in, in college with uh, Jerome Bruner, who's a brilliant cognitive psychologist who taught me to do cognitive research on thinking and looking at 
motivation from the point of view of both personality mm -hmm. and incentive systems, mm -hmm. which, by the way, was a kind of basis for work I've done later. Then uh, I got to work with David Reisman, great sociologist. Mm -hmm. With him, I was teaching in his course in the University of Chicago. It was a kind of basic social science course, but there I learned all the basis of social science about work. And I also learned the beginnings of psychoanalysis. Uh, and I began to see how important work is to human development. Mm -hmm. Freud was once asked, how do you define health? He said, Leben und Arbeiten, mm -hmm. love and work. Mm -hmm. And you can also say, love in your work. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that time and time again. So I got really interested. If we're talking about human development, the economists just think it's more money, more things. But I don't agree. I think it's love and work. Mm -hmm. And I could see that a lot of the work people were doing on assembly lines and so on were mind-destroying. We're making people angry, even having political impact. Mm -hmm. Well, I had the opportunity when I got my Ph.D. combining anthropo cultural anthropology and psychology. I had the opportunity to go to Mexico. I had a fellowship from the National Institute of Mental Health to do both training and research with Eric Fromm, great psychoanalyst, who, is, who had started an institute of psychoanalysis in Mexico. And he had started a study of a peasant village from the point of view of how can you see the interaction between personality, productivity, psychopathology, alcoholism, violence, and development. But he needed someone to help him who knew statistics and psychological testing, and I had all of that. What I learned from Fromm in that whole study was the importance of a concept called social character. What we learned was that every society shapes the personality of people in that society to want to do what they need to do to succeed within that economic, social, and political system. And so uh, the peasants who succeeded, who were productive, had a typical personality which is true of peasants throughout the world, mm -hmm. independent, family-focused, hardworking, religious, suspicious of people outside the system, fatalistic in terms of the weather mm -hmm. and what could happen to their crops and so on, and also cooperative. They didn't like leadership. Leaders were people who exploit you. Mm -hmm. They were independent. And the people who didn't succeed were people who were still had the personality that had been shaped in the hacienda system, which was a semi-slavery in Mexico before the revolution. And they had been brought up to be passive, accepting, and they tended once they were given land by the government after the revolution, they sold it, they drank the profits, they tended to be macho to hide their 
dependency, and there was a lot, a lot of violence came from drinking and threats to your manliness, and and the women became very hard-hearted, and and there was a kind of war between the sexes and so on. So I really un- began to understand personality, mm-hmm. both individual through my psychoanalytic work and social character, how important it is. And I came back to the United States with a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. I, I was interested to see, I now have been studying some of the most powerless people in the world. But who's changing the world? It's the people creating the technology. I had the sense that they were going to transform the world. I don't know how, but I had that feeling. And I was able to uh, get a uh, very innovative uh, vice president of Hewlett-Packard to invite me in. Then I got a grant from Harvard that was set up by IBM oh, really? <laughs> uh, to study technology in society. And they gave me a grant to study technology, work, and character. And I was able to study people in about 10 of the major technology companies, Intel, Texas Instruments, IBM, uh, DuPont, Schlumberger, Xerox, And to make a long story short, then I found a a very creative, visionary CEO, Sidney Harmon. And he heard me speak on this, and he had a factory that was a UAW factory. And I felt if I could show that it was possible Mm -hmm. to transform work in a way that the workers would feel more engaged and also would be more productive— that this would be a big deal and have a big effect, and it did. What we did in a little factory in Tennessee was taken over by Ford and GM, and then uh, I met the vice president of HR from Volvo Mm -hmm. at a meeting, and he invited me to Sweden to help them do this, and then other companies invited me in. Then the Swedes asked me to study their leadership and look at what the— future of leadership was one of the companies that hired me, the CEO, uh, Jorn Kohler, of the largest bank in Sweden, Swedbank, asked me to teach his vice presidents to understand strategy. I said, I have no, how can I teach that? I don't know that. <laughs> so I tried, I tried to get them to think strategically at a meeting, mm-hmm. but they were always thinking operationally. When they were given a challenge, what should we do in this new environment? The answer was always cut costs, be more productive. So I sat down with Yaron. I said, I'm going to interview you and see how you think, because you're a great strategist. He had foreseen the bubble in Sweden before anyone else. He had transformed the whole savings bank system into one big savings bank. And so I interviewed him. And what came out was the beginnings of strategic intelligence. That's fascinating. What was lacking was understanding systems thinking. And I got to know Russell Acuff, who was at the Wharton School, but a tremendous thinker of systems understanding. He was also a consultant to Volvo. And I started to learn from him. And he invited me to work with him in the transformation of Canadian Pacific. Meanwhile... 
AT&T had asked, was still a monopoly. And the union and the company asked me together if I could take these ideas and transform the Bell system. And we worked for many years, created tremendous results. So just one thing led to the other. And what you see in this book is really the results of all that. Then in 1990, Claire Crawford Mason, who had been a producer at NBC, who had done the program that introduced W. Edwards Deming to America, Japan can, why can't we, came to see me. She said, Dr. Deming is looking for someone to talk to about leadership and motivation, and he liked your recent book, Why Work? Would you be willing to come and have dinner and talk to him? That started three years of periodic dinners and discussions where I learned about profound knowledge from Deming. Well, he was taking notes from me about leadership and motivation. So all of that is what's brought together within strategic intelligence. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership with Dr. David Shulkin. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The VA has played a role in training America's doctors and clinicians for decades with education and training programs. Here's Dr. David Shulkin. One of the gifts that was given to the VA back in 1946 by the person then who was leading the VA general, Omar Bradley, was a recognition that if you worked with the country's leading medical schools, that that would be a good thing for veterans and a good thing for the medical schools. And so today, VA has relationships with 1,800 leading educational facilities and almost every major medical school in the country. It's why you often see a VA physically located next to a major university center wherever you travel. And so what many people don't realize is is that if the VA system weren't here, there probably wouldn't be a way to be training America's healthcare professionals because we train over 120,000 healthcare students every year. We're the largest trainer of medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, social work students, and the lists go on and on. And so 70% of American doctors uh, who train in medical schools will get some part of their training in the VA system. I know in my own case, I trained in three VAs uh, during my medical training. And so uh, if the VA system weren't there to provide this type of training, uh, there wouldn't be a supply of healthcare professionals for the rest of the country. And frankly, this is a good thing, not only for the rest of the country, but for veterans, because these students come and they keep everybody who works at the VA sharp and with the new ideas and demanding that they have the best technology. And so this is a collaboration that really works well for veterans and works well for VA and is important for the rest of the country. Going from training and education to research, for over 75 years, VA research has been around and doing cutting-edge work in medical and prosthetic devices. Dr. David Shulkin explained what they are actually doing in this area. Well, uh, again, the VA, besides its great clinical work it does, besides its educational work, also contributes to the country through its research. 
$1.6 billion a year dedicated solely to research that helps veterans' well-being. There is no other organization that does anything like this. But besides helping veterans, many of the discoveries and research that we do uh, translate into important advances for the rest of American medicine. So the very first liver transplant done in the country was done in a VA. The nicotine patch was developed in, in the VA. The pacemaker, the dialysis machines that keep our renal uh, patients alive, uh, radio amino assays, um, the work that was done that shows that a aspirin a day may prevent heart attacks. Uh, the lists go on and on, three Nobel Prizes done uh, within the VA system, the work that led to antivirals to prevent um, HIV and hepatitis, much of that work done in the VA system. So uh, when uh, people talk about the VA system, I'm not sure they realize that if it wasn't for this type of research, we wouldn't have many of the advances that are existing today for all Americans. I ended my conversation with Dr. David Shulkin asking him for advice what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in either medicine or public service or both? Well, uh, the advice I give to all people who ask my advice is do something that you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about helping people, uh, I couldn't be stronger in my advice to go into health professions and public service. Uh, for those that haven't had the opportunity to go and to help people, and to contribute to the lives and, and improving lives for others, uh, I think that they're missing out on something. So much of the dissatisfaction that I see among uh, many of my colleagues out in the private sector in healthcare is because uh, they are chasing uh, things that really are increasingly difficult, uh, which is uh, their own autonomy and their own financial advantages. And I think that if people go into healthcare for the right reason, which is to help people and to serve, uh, they're going to have great, satisfying careers. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership with Dr. David Shulkin, the new secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can risk management strategies reduce operational risk? How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? Join Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.